Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good man, a lot of time. Which direction we are going? Directly Camino. It would have been DWI. A tipping point. Good evening, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. It is time once again for the tipping point, bro. (laughs) Joining you is me, Stephen Platinum, and... The venerable, the lovely, and wonderfully Russo-free Larry Goodman. How are you doing tonight, Larry? I'm doing fine, bro. How are you? <laughs> bro, bro. <laughs> um, Larry, you know, we're going to talk about uh, the Vince Russo podcast that they did with Stevie Richards at the end. Um, what would your rough guess be? Now, you didn't listen to the whole thing, I would assume. I assume you did not I do w- that to yourself. I listened to most of it. I actually okay. did because, yeah, I did listen to most of it. Now, I counted the bros. What is your guess? This is kind of like a carnival game, you know, where it's like guess how many, uh, you know, guess how heavy this pig is, guess how many pieces of candy are in this jar. How many bros happened during the Vince Russo podcast? Your guess. I'm going to guess 30 to 40. I uh, just – Oh, you're actually, you are, you're correct. So we'll really? find out the exact number at the end. <laughs> Isn't cool. That pathetic? <laughs> Isn't that pathetic? That you probably just was like, oh, let me, let me throw a kind of high number out there. And then, <laughs> and then you're correct. Truth, stranger than fiction. Speaking of which, truth, stranger than fiction, tonight's guest is the uh, the legendary, you know, that's a, that's a word that's thrown around a lot, but it definitely applies in this case, uh, Jody Hamilton. I know you're excited about that, Larry. Yeah, that that is uh, so true that uh, a true legend, um, a career that spanned over 50 years, wrestler, trainer, promoter, booker. I mean, he did it. He did it all in wrestling. So yeah, I'm I'm curious and interested to. Uh, and honored to talk with Jody Hamilton here in a few minutes. But you know, we got a real packed show. Um, we get we got to talk about what happened this last weekend and other things that you brought up before we went on air. What's hey, going you know, on, Larry? Before we even do that, we've got yeah. a new podcast on GWH Radio. Oh, we, this we must mention this: uh, the the Rassel Man. 
Rassel Men, excuse me, uh, hosted by Matt Hankins. Uh, the first show dropped last night, and it's it's something different. Um, what makes it stand out is that it's recorded live. It's not on a telephone. It's a bunch of it's folks sitting around talking wrestling. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, and the, the, I think the live aspect of it really is a, is a nice thing. Uh, it's Matt Hankins, uh, Brian Blaze, Shane Marks, Nina Monet, Bill the Butcher. Um, it's sort of like sitting in the PCW locker room, actually. Yes. Um, oh, God help us all. So yeah. Without, so they, they, with that, without this distinct odor of weed. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> so that's a little different. But, yes, yeah, so check out the Rasselman. So that's, is that a, it's going to be a Monday night thing? I don't know that we've settled on a uh, – if Matt settled on a regular night, but we decided to go okay. ahead and get that first one up there. So it's the Rasselman. The first episode is – up, they they do a lot of talking about New Japan, and some pretty funny stuff about that. So um, yeah, check it out. Um, awesome. But onto the yeah yeah. So that's I think they're going to go with a, a weekly schedule, unlike us. You know, I think they may actually run a regular weekly schedule. Uh, and uh, you know, like Matt said, you know, it's, it's it's you know a lot easier than listening than than, than listening to my voice. So that you you probably will enjoy it. He's he's much more. Uh, <laughs> comfortable and smooth person to listen to than listening to my Chicago garble. So, uh, yeah, the weekend, boy, anarchy. Where do we start? Yes, anarchy. anarchy. Let's start with the good stuff. Anarchy, man. Dan Wilson continues to be on fire as a booker. Yeah. They're, 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 they're drawing better than they have in a long time. Really good, entertaining show. Um, interesting show top to bottom getting the best out of the talent on the roster, I think. Um, and, you know, I like it when you get a show and you get it all done in two hours. Um, that's, a, that, that's a good thing. Nicely done. What's the next big show that they're prepping for? So they, they're doing Hardcore Hell, which is typically a March show. This year it is going to be April, I want to say the 14th. I might have that date wrong. But it's okay. pushed back into, into April, and which is a good thing because they only had one taping in February. Um, so it'll be the second Saturday in April, whatever that falls on. That will be Hardcore Hell, which will be, what, the 21st yes. year? Yes, yeah. Yeah, in, in well, Cornelia anyway. And speaking of Cornelia, what are the other shows that happened this weekend? Well, uh, we we touched on this uh, last week that uh, Big Wood and uh, Daryl Grissom continue to do uh, very, very uh, well with GPW in Canton. Again, uh, a crowd of over 250 people. They seem to have a regular uh, house now that they're drawing of over 250 people there in, in Canton. So good for those guys. Um, and then the other thing... Uh, for me, was AWE Sunday coming into the um, Landmark Arena, the fifth promotion to run the building this month. And wow! Yeah, I mean, if you if you count Anarchy and NCW, five different promotions in this month. Uh, I'd have to say that of the ones that aren't you know home based promotions, Southern Fry did the best as far as box office. Absolutely. Because 
Charles got his his folks his folks turned out for the show. Um, yeah, they course, they drew in the neighborhood of. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't it 150? It was close to 150 paid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was he was happy with that. Of course, Luke Hawks came in with Wildcat, and he had the misfortune of running against Ricky Nelson five miles away with the Steiner brothers and Bagwell and Dakita Koloff, and then another benefit show um, for um, Will Carter, who um, condolences to uh, Will Carter, who wrestles under the name Will Caution. His his son died tragically um, oh, within the last with his within the last week, and they had a benefit show for him there. Uh, so Luke was running against two shows within five miles, and he, I think he was happy to draw 70. Yeah. With, so with he that drew, situation. But he managed to draw 70. I got to say um, that that would have been a little higher than I would have predicted. So, I mean, kudos to them for getting the word out enough to draw that 70 against those two really powerhouse shows in in completely different ways. Like you said, less than five miles away. How did AWE do? Not so good. Uh, The, I'm going to say paid was 40, maybe 45 at the most people, but I'm going to say, you know, 35, 40 paid. And what was disappointing, I think, I think had to be disappointing is how few of their regular fans came out to Cornelia to see the show. Most of it, most of the people there were, um, Local folks, not the AWE regulars from Atlanta. I'd say they mm. had no more than ten of their regular fans that drove to Cornelia for the show. Um, but and they do plan to return on April 29th. So a little bit of change in their um, model. I think uh, Josh Wheeler is planning to just run like a quarter. He may not run quarterly, but only four big shows a year. And the rest would be uh, tapings for content, like they did Sunday out at um, out in Cornelia. So this the plan for the Sunday show is, and it may already be up, was to uh, post it up on Facebook as a lead-in to their big show, which is a week from Sunday at the Opera Nightclub. Okay, and who's going to be there for that? That's when they have uh, Emma. Okay, coming in as, as their uh, name star for that show. Um, and I mean Eddie Kingston's on the card, Caleb Conley. They've got some name folks coming in on that on that uh, March 11th show. Now you mentioned some news about Knoxville, I believe. What well, was that? Well, this this was something that showed up on Trent Van Dries's Mid Southern board uh, last week, and uh, Scott Hensley did some digging around about what this was. So what, what it is is they had advertised, some unknown group had advertised for uh, a TV taping of an unannounced pro wrestling TV series. Production will take place in the Nashville area. So this was a pro wrestling TV taping audience invite form. Before you enter huh. the studio, you will be required to sign a non-disclosure agreement and provide a copy of your identification. Um, and this is March 27th, March 28th, March 29. Uh, they want the audience there from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. roughly each of the three days. Ooh-wee. Ooh-wee. And listed uh, as appearing, Jeff Cobb, Gunnar Miller, uh, Brian Pillman II, 
Corey Hollis, Joey Janella, James Storm, Shane Strickland. Um, and the, the digging around turned up the name Dojo Pro um, mm-hmm. as the name of this group. And oddly enough, their uh, legal paperwork is going through one of uh, Trump's attorneys, or his firm, I should say, a guy named uh, Jay. I, I may not be pronouncing this right, Jay Sokolow. That law, that law firm is – the paperwork tracks back to that law firm for whatever that's worth. So anyway, wow. what is this? Yeah, so they they, they did uh, send out contracts to, to uh, talent, and the rumor is that this is some kind of a deal with Amazon. Now, it may just be one of those uh, pivot share deals, which is you know, just a subscription model. Mm-hmm. Um, but – you know, I don't know. It seems to me like this is a sign of an independent wrestling bubble. When for something like this just to to pop up like this, um, so we shall see. That's going to be the like I say, March twenty seventh, March twenty eighth, March twenty ninth in Nashville. If it if it follows through, that's what's going to happen. So, to the best of your knowledge, Larry, are they charging to attend the show? No, I don't believe so. Or- so they're just inviting fans kind of en masse as long as you're willing to sign the non-disclosure. So in theory, they're going to tape a bunch of shows over those three days. I mean, that's five hours a day, 15 hours. So it's, it's not hard to imagine them chopping that up into a season's worth of shows, as it were. Right. And then they, won't, they don't want the results getting out. Because I... I got to say that's probably a smart way to go about it. I don't really know the Tennessee area like, say, you would or Scott Hensley would. Uh, I would imagine if they can get a good crowd in there to see that thing that, you know, there's a chance. Uh, I guess depending on all the niceties like booking and, you know, how well are they going to establish things, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know. It's not the worst idea. I think maybe the non-disclosure thing is a really good idea if people will actually stick to it. Yeah, I don't know how you can enforce such a thing. What are you going to do, sue the – I mean, and how are you going to know who leaked it out when the results come out? Uh, I mean, really, I I don't know how you could possibly enforce such a thing. But I I just wonder if there's so many of these um, subscription model shows out there Mm-hmm. And they're using some of the same, you know, hot indie talent that are being used by other groups. I just don't see the demand unless they've got some super, some super special idea up their sleeve that they're going to pull out. What would differentiate this or make this more interesting than, uh, like, piece, you know, Pacific Coast Wrestling, for example, that has a similar kind of thing, um, and right. and a really hot thousand, you know, person crowd on on their on their shows. I don't know why why this would be. Uh, worthwhile but they're going to take their shot evidently you know maybe this and of course this is me probably outthinking them like overthinking it but it would be nice if they had a couple things that happened during those tapings that were so shocking or so unexpected and so interesting that it couldn't help but leak and then once that leak happened people would tune in to actually see how the thing played out. That would be awesome. And I think a great way to promote a show actually is like, you can't say anything knowing 
inevitably somebody is going to say something. Cause like you said, how could you trace that? How could you track that? What would that even mean? If, even if you knew who it was, so what, right? I mean, what, what are you going to do? But, but to use that as sort of a, Oh my gosh, this thing leaked out. This is so crazy. You guys got to, you know, hear about this or see this or can't believe this guy showed up or whatever. So, you know, again, it's, at least it's, it's pregnant with possibility, though experience tells us there's a good chance that nothing good will come of it, but maybe something will. We can all hope. Well, and word has it that it's not really experienced people that are behind this. There's also there's a rumor that, you know, Bischoff is involved. That's strictly, you know, rumor. But um, it sounds like, you know, I, I like your idea. They, they, they need they, – they need somebody with those kind of ideas that would be great that would be excellent i mean that could you imagine you know if friggin eric bischoff showed up or somebody got i remember there was a group that sort of tried to make a national push at one point i can't even remember the name of it and this was many years ago but they sort of rolled into another bigger indie show with Sandman and a bunch of other guys. And they just beat the holy hell out of the entire roster of this. That had drawn really well up to that point. So it was this kind of big splash that they made. And then nothing happened out of it. Like, you know, it was another one of these groups that promised the world. And we're going to have health insurance for the boys. And this, that, and the other. And then, again, it was, you know, some money Mark had put up the money to do all this great stuff. And then everything fell apart because that's what tends to happen. But I do remember, I mean, the fact that I can still remember that angle of like a limousine pulling up, I guess, at this indie show and then Sandman getting out and a bunch of other guys getting out that were names at the time and then beating the Holy hell and destroying this indie and then sort of making the big promo of we are blah, blah, blah wrestling and we're going to take over everybody. And uh Yeah. Well, Steve, we're joined by the uh, guest of honor has arrived. Yes, sir. We're joined now by the legendary assassin, Joni Hamilton. His career spanned over 50 years as a wrestler, promoter, trainer. He's done it all. Um, We're thrilled to have with us at this point, Jody Hamilton. Welcome to the Tipping Point. Appreciate the invite. Hey, Mr. Hamilton. How are you? Doing fine, sir. Well, I, I know Larry has a bunch of questions he wants to ask you about your career. I have one right off the top, just to sort of get us warmed up. Um, you know, you've you've done so many things in pro wrestling, so many different things. Booker, right? Promoter, trainer. Uh, obviously, you were a wrestler and a great one. Um, what's the aspect of the, all those jobs that you did – which one do you think is sort of the weakest nowadays with what you see in wrestling and what's going on today? Where is it really lacking? The, the in-ring work. Yes, tell us about yeah. that. Well, it's just, uh, you know, and it's actually no fault because uh, <clears throat> there's not a knock towards the uh, wrestlers of the day because uh, uh, by and large, most of them are, uh, are uh, superior athletes. It's just that they, uh, you only have one promotion out there, and 
when you work for that promotion, and if you're going to, if you're going to make any money out of the professional wrestling business today, you need to work for a major promotion. With one major promotion left, you either work for him or you don't work for anybody, and that's that's just the bottom line. And you think the, the in ring do you think the in ring skills have suffered as a result? Is is it everybody's wrestling the same style? Is it that everybody's wrestling generally for this like well, you, five you, to seven Yeah. No, you're doing you're the wrestlers of today go out there and perform according to his specifications. Yeah. Not the specifications of someone that knows what the hell they're doing or who knows the business or knows in ring, what in-ring wrestling is all about, is according to his specifications. And he's a, he's a glorified Hollywood stuntman, you know. Larry. Um, how closely do you follow the um, current WWE product? Not, I don't follow it at all anymore. Don't watch it? Nope. Do uh, do you watch any wrestling? Well, what else is there? Well, any of the um, independent groups or TNA or Ring of Honor, um, New Japan, any of the other? Well, I don't I don't get them on my television here. Okay. Um, what at what point did you what at what point did you kind of? fall out of love out of watching WWE. Is it is it like the end of WCW? Is that when you stopped watching altogether because there wasn't anything on TV except for WWE? Nah, I don't recall. I, I think it's more uh, that uh, that uh, McMahon Jr. involved himself in, uh, in uh, not only the in-ring activities but uh, the uh, the running of the business in general and everything, yeah. uh, you know, I I don't I don't agree with his ideology. I don't agree with his philosophy. I don't agree with uh, uh, hardly anything the man does. What What's the last group that was running that you that you really uh, that you would agree with that you thought was the last group? that existed that you thought really did it right? Well, WCW took a hell of a shot at it. Yeah. And they, uh, they fell, they, they kind of fell, you know, uh, because they were, when, when they were on their own creating, uh, scenarios and things, on their own and doing their own thinking, that was great. But when they when, when their downfall, WCW's downfall was when they started to try to duplicate everything that was being done in in well, everybody calls it New York, but in the the WWF at the time, and that was their downfall. Mr. Hamilton, how much did you butt heads with the WWE um, organization when you were uh, running the developmental program at um, Deep South? How much did I butt heads with them? Yeah, did I mean 
was there a lot of conflict? I mean, if they, since if you did not agree with their a lot of the, their their ways of doing things, and you had the developmental group, was that how no, big I'm of an issue was about, that? I'm talking about present day. I don't agree with the way they're doing things now. As far okay. as uh, me butting heads with them uh, when I was running their developmental system for them, uh, and so on. Uh, I really wasn't aware that I was butting heads with them. I had a meeting with Vince McMahon when I took over the developmental system, Vince McMahon Jr. When I took over the developmental system, we had an agreement, and he didn't live up to his end of the bargain. Simple as that. In what way do you... I was told that I was going to be allowed to do things one way, and then... Turned out that he wanted them done another way. I didn't agree with it, so we agreed to disagree. Can you say what it was that anything specific that he wanted done that was different than the way you wanted to do? Yeah, training the guys. He he wanted them trained differently than the way you wanted to train them. Yeah, he wanted to train them showbiz, and I wanted to train athletes. Of course, a lot of great wrestlers came out of uh, Deep South. Um, a lot of great stars came out of Deep South. Um, I mean, just off the top, Miz, MVP, Luke Gallows, um, many, many others. Uh, what, do you, in your opinion, is, is the sort of lasting legacy of, of Deep South? Well... You know, you can never go wrong when you make sure that you, as an individual, whether you are promoting, whether you're wrestling, whether you're uh, uh, teaching, if you've got one thing on mind, in your mind, and that is don't ever teach you anything that's detrimental to your business. And I tried not to do that, and I think I pretty well, I succeeded pretty well. I don't believe that any time in my life have I ever taught anybody to do anything that would turn out to be detrimental to either themselves, their career, or to professional wrestling. Was there anyone would... in particular that you had at Deep South as talent that you thought should have made it more and and didn't for whatever reasons uh, yeah there was there was there was, there was some i I don't really want to get into into the individual aspect of it but uh yeah there was uh there were there were several guys that uh that I had trained that should have made it a hell of a lot bigger than they uh, than they were allowed to make it yeah yeah. I'm I'm going to switch gears for a second, Mr. Hamilton. What's what's the most like when you look back cuz you had a a 50-year career. What what's an aspect of your career that you go, "Man, I had the most fun during this time." What's what's a time you can remember in your career where you're just like, "Man, I I that was maybe the best time that I had as far as pro wrestling was concerned." Mm. Well, I started, had my first match in 19, 
56. And I had my last match in 1989. Mm-hmm. And I just got to tell you that uh, the time between 56 and 89 was the best time of my life. Mm-hmm. And that my, my entire career was an uh, in-ring career I'm talking about right now. Yeah, yeah, My yeah. entire in-ring career was... Uh, Very few people in life get to spend that many years or spend a career doing something that they love. Most guys yeah. are stuck in jobs that they can't stand, you know, or they're there because of circumstances and so on. I was there because I wanted to be there. I loved to be there. I was good at what I did. And mm-hmm. when I'm good at something that I do and everything, I have a tendency, and I think everybody does, has a tendency to love what they're doing more than uh, than uh, they would if they weren't very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Hamilton, at, during your in-ring career, what was the moment where you felt like you went from somebody who was kind of learning the ropes to somebody who, you know what, I know how to make money, and I know how to, I know how to make money for a promotion. When did you, like, turn that corner? Because to, to me, that's, really the sign of a professional wrestler when you learn what it takes to make money. When did that happen in your career? Gee, that's hard to say because yeah, <clears throat> there's a difference between when you know it and when the uh, promoters uh, uh, know it <laughs> and allow you to express it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I knew it pretty much from the getting go. You know what? Once I got my legs on the ground and and uh, and so on, and and at 19 years old survived walking down that aisle to uh, a sold out crowd in Madison Square Garden <laughs> and getting over those jitters. And when I after I lived through that, I figured out to hell, I could live through anything in wrestling now. <laughs> I, I I read that you were the youngest uh, wrestler to be a part of a main event match at the Madison Square Garden. Is that is that true? That is correct. That happened wow. on. Uh, let's see, when that was it? January March, May twenty fourth, nineteen fifty eight. I became the youngest man to ever wrestle on a main event in Madison Square Garden, and I still am today. That's sixty years. Oh man, that must have been amazing. Um, Larry, you wanted to ask about Tom Ernesto, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, me? I don't. I, I was curious to ask you about your uh, thoughts about Tom Ernesto, your partnership with Tom Ernesto. I don't think many Georgia fans these days have much knowledge about him. Oh, okay. What well, regard, you know? Um. <clears throat> What made your partnership click so well? Pardon me? What made your partnership with him so special? Five minutes after we teamed up in the ring, for the very first time 
and we had never met each other. I knew who he was, and at one time he had been partners with my brother in the Carolinas, but Tom and I had never met. And five minutes after we had our first match together in the ring in downtown City Auditorium in Atlanta, Georgia and everything, Tom and I both knew that we had something very special because it was like mental telepathy. I I could read what he wanted me to do when I when he tagged me in the ring and what he was setting up, and he could read the same thing about me. We read each other's minds, and it was it was the most phenomenal thing that I had ever experienced in my life. And that's basically how we conducted our entire career. Why is it that you were um, you were always the assassins, except in the Carolinas? I beg your pardon. You were always known as the assassins, except in the Carolinas. True. Because Tom, because Tom was there prior to the creation of the team of the assassins. Tom was there and was the biggest star that uh, the Carolinas and Virginia had ever had. So consequently, why buck human nature and go in there and try to reestablish another name when you already got one established? So all we did was he was he was the great bolo, and I went in there with his, as his partner as the bolo. Okay. Steve, you got a question? Yeah, you know, since you were so prominent in tag team wrestling, when you were at Deep South running the developmental there, is what, what's a team that you tried to really try to impart your knowledge towards that you thought would have been a great tag team when you were at Deep South? Well, they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't training people to be, uh, to be tag teams back then. Mm. And when uh, when when I did have the opportunity to, to give some guys some advice on tag team wrestling and everything, the biggest thing I always told them is, is you're a team. You're not individuals. Don't go out there and have two individual matches. You go out there and have your individual match and everything, then you tag your partner, and your partner comes in, and he has an individual match. That's not tag team wrestling. Tag team wrestling is, especially for for uh, the the uh, sake of the of the villains. Yeah. Tag team wrestling is two is is two on one. Two on one tag team wrestling. You got two guys basically working on one guy all the time. Well, you know that. Go ahead. Um, you know, I can't hear you, uh, Mister. Oh, sorry, Mister Hamilton. Um, you know, I always find tag team wrestling fascinating because it really started off, and I mean, this was years and years and years ago as a gimmick match, right? And then it just sort of, especially in the South, caught on as its own thing, and has become a mainstay of pro wrestling. Um, 
it's really an amazing thing. When did you figure out that? I mean, I, I, I think that when you were at deep South, the reason they didn't emphasize tag teams is because I think they foolishly thought, Oh, why are we going to pay four guys to do the job of two guys, you know, take up a match with four different people, which was very foolish and short sighted. Was that one of the things that, you would sort of clash with Vince McMahon about, did you think that there should be tag team wrestling taught and he disagreed? Yep. Yeah. Yes. By all means. I, I, I thought that, uh, tag team wrestling was, and he is, I mean, he's still going to have individual stars, right? Individual stars are going to be individual stars, regardless of how you feature them. However, tag team wrestling are four stars rolled into one magnificent package that can give you four times the action that an individual star can give you. So why not feature tag team wrestling? Give the people what they want. The people, the wrestling fans, have long been denied what they want because nobody considers the wrestling fan. Nobody gives the wrestling fan a second thought. They put their product out there on the table and said, here, eat it or starve. And that's what wrestling fans have been graced with down through the years with single promotions. You either eat their product or their food that they put out there on the table or you starve. And personally, I'd rather starve than eat some of the crap that they put out there. Well, and um, Jody, you you had good tag teams in Deep South. Uh, uh, the Majors brothers, um, you know, who later were Kurt Hawkins and T- Trent Beretta, Santarelli, and um, Mike. But Taylor. how far did they go? Did they go? They didn't. And were they allowed to reach their full potential? Hell no. No. No, I no. agree. Yeah. Still there? I was, yeah, I was curious about the other, the original. You have to speak South. up. I, uh, we got a bad connection or something. Cause I can, I can barely hear you. Sorry about that. I was curious to ask you about the start of the original Deep South. You're going to ask me about what now? The, the start of the original Deep South wrestling that. Uh, Back in the, um, I guess that would have been in the 1980s. There, that where you that ran in Georgia. Yeah. Okay. What, what, was, about it? what was your thought of why did you want to get into the um, promotion end? Why did I, why did, I'm sorry, I, I still what, can't hear you. What 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 uh, moved you to want to get into that part of the business? that part of the wrestling business of running your own wrestling company? Well, it's like everything else. If you've got control of it, if it's your business and it's your money involved and it's your money invested in it and so on, then you run it the damn way you, you, you see fit, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was what I disagreed with everybody else. That when, whenever I was running a company, or a business for other people, 
with their money involved, and I got to do basically what do it the way they want it done, whether they're whether I agree with what they're doing or not. So that's why I, uh, I had Deep South to start with. I still remember when Deep South started. If I'm remembering this right, there was a you didn't thing on TV with Joe Petticino. Um Yeah. And I just remember him. You, it looked to me like. He was legitimately you, – you legitimately scared the hell out of him. <laughs> out of who? Out of you scared the hell out of out of Joe Petticino on live television. Well, yeah. That was – it was it was justified because it wouldn't have taken much for me to – I always kind of wanted to backhand him across that smart-ass mouth, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way Poor it Joe. looked. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Joe. Poor <laughs> Joe. Um, Mr. Hamilton, we're almost out of time, but one thing I wanted to ask you uh, was who's somebody who, because, you know, with with wrestling how it is now, um, even when Larry and I talk, there's a lot of talk about what's not good and, you know, the ways that they're failing and that kind of thing. What's something that you that by your estimation is actually better now than it was say twenty thirty years ago? Is there anything in the wrestling business that technology. has improved? Mm, yes. Technology has has absolutely blown the doors off of everything. I think the spectacular entrances and exits and and the. Uh, the technology that is uh, that has taken over the actual filming of of, uh, of matches and so on yeah. is absolutely has brought wrestling to an all time high, and it's a damn good thing too because it's sure the quality of, pro- of the product. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was recently looking through. Cause I have two kids and one of the kids likes wrestling. And so she wanted to watch all the WrestleManias. So she yeah. we were watching the first WrestleMania and she just kept saying like, she couldn't believe how primitive it looked. And you can even yeah. see the difference between WrestleMania two and WrestleMania one. Like they'd sort of, I, yeah. I guess at that point they had hooked up with NBC. So like uh, the lighting improved, the camera work improves and, the funny thing is when she was looking at world class, she was looking at world class programming. She was like, this is really good. And I was like, you know, for the time it was incredibly ahead of the game compared to how most wrestling was taped. And so I think, I think your, I think your point is an incredibly solid one. Who, which, uh, which group did you work for that you thought did a really good job with what they had as far as technology or the use of cameras? Which one you thought was the best produced wrestling show that you were ever on? I thought WCW was uh, yeah. right up there. And for what I had to work with and everything, I thought uh, the original Deep South was as good as it got for an independent show. And the, I would one of the things that... One of the things that always, to me, that always makes a product, whether it's, you know, you, you can talk about the great technology and this and great technology and that and so on, and Lord knows, WWE has got some great, great technology uh, in this day and age because everything is modern. 
but back in the days when you had to improvise and you had a two camera shoot, mm-hmm. you, know, you 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 had to do with what you had to do with, and you better know what you're doing if you're going to come out with a with a product that uh, that was decent. And I thought, considering the fact that uh, we had one of the best independent shows in the country, if not the best independent show in the entire country. I think it was due to uh, utilize, being able to utilize everything that we had, at, or the things that we had at our disposal, and improvise when necessary. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, one thing I noticed during the last WWE pay-per-view, Elimination Chamber, is actually how shoddy the camera work and the edits were. Like, they missed shots. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't, I don't recall wrestling back in the day ever missing major moments. Now, you, you know, if you only had a two-camera shoot, you're not going to miss things. You can't afford to miss them, you know. But I think now they're almost too – they're overthinking it. You know, they do a camera cut every two or three seconds, and they don't allow the camera to be still and let the guys tell the story. They're trying to sort of force things by doing all these camera angles now. That's what yeah, I see. Yeah. Well, and all the times that I've had an independent show, mm-hmm. the only time that I can recall missing having a cameraman – Miss shots. It's when, and if you if you remember now, we never had staged. We had a we had a we had a one permanent camera. Right. That was located somewhere away from the ring. Then we had a floor camera. Then we also had two cameras, guys with two cameras, that were up and down on the ring and around the ring apron. Okay. You remember that? Yes. Because you could see it from the far camera. The only time you could see those guys was from when you got a shot from the far camera. Otherwise, those guys from the floor or on the apron were taking the shots from in the ring. And the only time we ever lost a shot was when the guy was standing, holding the camera on his right shoulder, hanging onto the top rope with his left hand. The wrestler in the ring hit the ropes, and the ring and the uh, the turnbuckles broke, and he went ass over tea kettle backwards, <laughs> and and ruined a, a ten thousand or twenty thousand dollar whatever whatever it was oh, God. camera and everything because he took a bump off the apron. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, do you have a do you have a vital question for Mr. Hamilton? Yeah, of of I know you worked many many territories. Did you have a favorite area that you worked? Was it Georgia? Or was it somewhere else? I had actually I had three. Atlanta was always my favorite. Florida was my second favorite, and then uh, mm. north south north south. Uh, Carolina and Virginia, Crockett Territory. Oh man, what a legacy! God, to get to work those yeah. those those territories at that time. I mean, that's that that's the you know the shining moments for all three of those places. Really amazing. Yeah. 
Mr. Hamilton, my, I, I have always have fond memories of the Atlanta City Auditorium, and I like to ask anybody who wrestled there what what their memory is of the Atlanta City Auditorium and wrestling there. Wasn't a bad seat in the house. No. Hmm. No. <laughs> Wasn't a bad seat in the house. That's the best thing that you. That's the best way you could ever describe the quality of a building. When you can actually honestly say that there's not a bad seat in the house, then you got a hell of a building. Yeah. 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 yeah the, the seating was on that steep on such a steep angle that there was yeah there was the balcony was great seats the loge was great seats everything yeah that's so true. Well, there right, never I, anybody in front of you. Yeah. No, never. I mean, never, when, you're, when your vision I mean, isn't being blocked. They were in front of you, but they, they weren't blocking your view. No. I mean, it took movie theaters 80 years to figure that out, right? Like, yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah. okay, I, li- I lied. I have one more question. What's the paycheck that you remember the most? What's the payday that you remember the most in your life when it comes to wrestling? Oh, Madison Square Garden. I, um, <laughs> but I worked when I was 19. I was in Madison Square Garden. Ooh. That was a good paycheck, huh? <laughs> for, the, for the time and the era and the amount of money that was that was drawn in the house, it was a hell of a paycheck. <laughs> I had never seen. I had. I was a punk ass. Hit from St. Joe, Missouri, and I never, I never thought I'd ever get handed a check for thirty-five hundred dollars. Ooh, child! Oh. Holy moly! Ooh! And that wasn't to be split either. That was thirty-five hundred for me and my brother. Got a check for the same amount. Ooh. Oh! Oh! That was got a, double. That. I bet that was a that was a good night, huh? That was. <laughs> mm-hmm. I bet you guys ate pretty good that night. <laughs> I'm telling you, the beer was colder and tastier than ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mr. Hamilton, I I really can't thank you enough. This has been an absolute pleasure and a joy. Larry? Yes, thank you so much, Mr. Hamilton. You you guys are welcome. Glad to do it. And we'll be able to do it again sometime. We'd love that. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care, sir. Okay, bye-bye. I knew I could get that guy to be happy. <laughs> you did. Thirty five hundred bucks in nineteen fifty eight. His his quarter share of the, Larry. Of, the ta- of the tag team match. His his fourth in nineteen. Oh my! God. Not bad. Not a bad. Not a bad haul. Wow. Oh my gosh! It makes me want to look up. I mean, this is something I'm going to do. I'm going to look up what. What could thirty five hundred dollars get you in nineteen fifty eight? I mean, <laughs> my God, that's. I mean, at the very well, least, that's probably a car and a half, right? Well, I'm going to say that's that's got to be like a, at least a twenty grand payoff these days, right? I mean, at least. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, they were that. working. They were working back then basically on percentage of house, right? Depending on where you were on the card. Yeah. And so, yeah. my God, man, that's a good payoff. I, it reminds me of, um, 
Have you ever seen those Jim Cornette books about the Midnight Express where he puts like photocopies of their checks and like, you know, all that kind of stuff in there? Yeah, it's, I have not seen that, but but I've heard him run through all that on his radio amazing. shows. Where he runs through the different paydays and all that. Yeah, some yeah. of those great American bash checks were right. You know, oh my God! Where it's, or the ones where Jim Cornette would you know they'd finally have like the blow off or you know where he would like Baby Doll would get her hands on him in a match and that kind of thing, and so he would get you know he would get semi main money depending if they were on the B show or not. And the, some of those checks are just so outrageous. It, I mean, it can't help but make guys work in the indie scene. If you look at that stuff, you just have to go, oh, God, I was, I was born in the wrong era. I mean, Jeff, Jeff G. and I say that all the time when we look at that stuff. You know, It's just like, God, why, why couldn't I have worked in the 60s and 70s? You know, I would have killed. Well, I would have killed. I just did a quick check here. One dollar yes, in in fifty eight uh, is now eight dollars and sixty cents. So that's a twenty five. Oh, that's shit. that's a thirty thousand dollar payoff in today's money that he got for that Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Oh man! Now we can't take away. They earn that money, and and again, like this is this is a sort of a, a clash that I have with the modern wrestler, especially the modern indie wrestler. When they ask, "How come I don't get paid?" Guys used to get paid, but the flip was they were a draw, right? Like people paid money to see that match. This it wasn't you didn't get things for the most part just out of it's your turn or you've paid your dues. It was a strict, were you, are you a draw? Are people like willing to pay and pack a building to see a blow off? And they earned every cent. I mean, literally they got paid proportional to their responsibility for the people being there. And uh, you know, it's a system that we'll never see again, I'm afraid. But uh, it's a system that made a lot of sense and kept a lot of guys employed. Something that people forget is there was a time where you had between one and 2,000 pro wrestlers making a living pro wrestling in this country. And that we're never going to see that again. You know, I mean, no. whatever the WWE roster is, and let's be generous and say it's 150, including developmental, right? That's 150 people making a living in pro wrestling versus there was a time where, again, you had between estimates range from 1,000 to 2,000 guys making a living pro wrestling. Um, and that number isn't very big. But it was certainly higher than it is now, and proportionally compared to the people. Generally, if you had the goods and you really wanted to do it, you could do it. If you were willing to take the knocks and you were willing to really just keep pushing ahead, you could make it um, by sheer force of will. I mean, but you had to put up with a lot of shit. <laughs> but if you were willing to do it, I mean, pick up a book from one of the old timers sometime and see what they went through to get there. But if you wanted it bad enough, you really could get there. Whereas now the selection process is different. 
I mean, there are some guys that no matter how bad they want it, no matter what they do, they're not going to make it just the way it is. Um, but, you know, there's only 150 spots. I wonder if guys ever think about that. That's cr- That's less than the NFL, you know? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I think about when I see really, you know, a lot of these good indie guys is, is yeah. I think to myself, well, this guy would have been making a living back in the day. He would have been a territory guy back in the day, and he would have been making a living as a wrestler. And now those spots, you know, you've got these, you, you do have these super indie guys that are making a living at, at and making a good living, evidently, if you're Joey Ryan by buying a half million dollar house. Um, but still, it's not that many guys that are that are able um, to do that. Going back to the payday thing for just a second, I know yes. that you know Jim Cornette's opinion is that when they stopped paying guys on the houses and went to just set contracts, to him that was sort of like the beginning of the death of the wrestling business. When there was the, when there wasn't that hunger to perform and that your pay was based on that performance and filling those seats. Yes, uh, and you know I think that that works in a second way as well that Jim Cornette didn't think of. He he approaches it from the the boys aren't hungry. I approach it from the the flip of that is I think once companies, I mean because let's face it, they didn't they didn't start offering contracts out of the goodness of their hearts. They did it because to not do it put you at a disadvantage compared to the company that did. Right. So it's, it's not so much that the contracts hurt as the fact that we're down to only one company can pay you a living wage. If there were more than one company that truly paid a living wage and was competitive then I think contracts be damned because the boys, even in the days where they got paid, based on the house, it's not like a, I I think people rose colored glass, the uh, territory days a lot. There were a lot of abuses that went on and, and, you know, paying somebody based off of the house, it leaves a lot of room for corruption, a lot of room for promoters, you know, taking the money and running, um, of the boys being the victims of if you got hurt, you didn't work and you didn't get paid, which just, it it just can't exist under a modern context. You know, the, the WWE contracts themselves are deemed archaic by every sports entity that exists. I mean, the WWE contracts as they exist now are considered these sort of like, bizarre antique relics that you know all major sports look at and like that's your that's what you guys got that sucks you know well um, i mean we we could they're independent contractors <laughs> right <laughs> I mean, ridiculous ridiculous and i mean because at the end of the day promoters have never by and large been good people I think that's the myth. For every Sam Mushnick, who is considered like a very quality guy, for the most part, you know. There's, there's a Nick Goulis. <laughs> right. There's a Nick Goulis or just different shades of of bad. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with Cornette that the, the birth of the contract was the death of pro wrestling. But that wouldn't have been the case if WCW had stayed around. Now, the boys took advantage of those contracts. You know, I think part of the problem was those contracts were so naively written 
Um, you know, there's the sports teams that do well with trades and drafts, and there's the sports teams that chase, um, you know, that, that overspend and give up too many draft picks for this guy. And that, and that was WCW. And it just took a couple of years to find fruition. You know, like I always think Kevin Nash did more damage to wrestling that, <laughs> that he doesn't get, that he doesn't get punished for. I mean, that guy abusing that system, it will never be that good again. You will never have contracts like that again, where they genuinely were concerned about the guys. Where it's like, you know, if you're hurt, we don't want you to come back until you're ready. And in a perfect world, that would mean, oh, you know, like, we're not going to take advantage of that system. I'm glad it's there. I'm glad I have that safety net now. Instead, a small group of guys fucked it up for everybody. Point blank, period. And those guys are never held to account. But unfortunately those guys are going to be the cautionary tale for the rest of time that wrestling promoters will take advantage of that story, you know, where they'll just be like, well, we can't give you that deal that every other civilized physical activity does. We can't give it to you because of this thing that happened in 97. (laughs) And I think that's a shame because there's going to be a time where somebody is going to take the WWE to task for their contracts. And then that's when things in wrestling are really going to get interesting. I don't know what it will mean, but something will have to change. It's a miracle that it's lasted this long. It really um, is. But it's gotten away with it. it. That they've gotten away with it. Um, But I mean, it's, it's when the first really terrible thing happens, somebody dying, God forbid, in a wrestling ring on live TV. And if there's any kind of dispute or uncovering, um, that's when it's going to get ugly. That's when, you know, wrestling sort of benefits from being beneath notice in a lot of ways. You know, if the Chris Benoit thing happened in in a major sport, it would have crippled that sport. But wrestling is almost seen as like, almost an inevitable consequence. And like, oh, wrestling is that weird outlawish thing. So it, it didn't really damage wrestling as it would of any major sport if that had happened. So we'll see how long wrestling can both be a billion-dollar company and be on all over television and have its own network, yet sort of run underneath the radar. It just doesn't seem like those t- two things can coincide forever. Mr. Steve, before we go, did you want to give a quick take on the Russo? God, I hated it. Like, Russo is terrible. And listening to this, I mean, the Stevie Richards interview, if that's what you want to call it, is one thing. Um, But what it did was, I, I listened to it, and honestly, as I was listening to it, I was wandering So I just started doing some research, right? This is the interesting part. So I took a look at, I'm like, oh, Russo used to have that like pyro and ballyhoo thing, right? He had that thing where he had the blog and all this kind of nonsense. And so I just sort of like, where did that go? So I started digging. And basically what it came down to is the guy that did the majority of the work 
set the website up, set up all the stuff financially. Because Russo had the balls to charge people to, you know, to access the forums and all kinds of things, <laughs> right? The balls. And, the, and, and by the way, if you're somebody who did pay to go on Pyro and Ballyhoo, you're a doofus and a moron. And... <laughs> And he screwed that guy out of money, Larry, and basically closed up shop and then acted like it was all that guy's fault. And clearly it was not. Like, clearly he just cut and ran on that guy and screwed him out of a bunch of money. And that's why, I mean, and it, all of this kind of character stuff with Russo, I think, really comes, comes through in his podcast. Um, at the end of the day, does he know about wrestling? Yeah, I don't think you could be involved with it as long as he was involved with it at the level he was involved with it and not understand it on some level. I'm not going to be one of these guys that say is, says Russo doesn't know what he's talking about ever. He does in the most surface general sense. He knows what he's talking about. And he certainly believes himself that he knows what he's talking about. But he's also the least self-aware person in pro wrestling, which covers <laughs> oh my God. an incredible amount. But I will declare that about Russo after listening to that thing with Stevie Richards is Russo sees everything from his own perspective. Every it's, it's only how it relates to him, how he feels it's important to him. Like that's the only thing that counts and the only thing that matters and he's got the answer, and only he can fix it. He's the fucking Donald Trump of pro wrestling, except, thank God, he has no position of power or authority over anybody. But it's the same kind of narcissistic, tired rhetoric, you know, the bro thing, the kind of lack of preparation. That's what I noticed about Russo, is there were times in that thing with Stevie Richards where he would just say something that was just flat out factually inaccurate. And Stevie Richards is, he's such a, like a nice different kind of guy that he would just sort of gloss over it and move on. But I just remember thinking like, how does Russo just get away with not knowing <laughs> about stuff that he was directly involved in? And he did like, you know, timelines and when this happened and when that happened, he's just not a very bright guy. And I think he's one of these folks that talks loud, talks with authority, again, very Trumpian, right? You just say the thing and you make a big choice and you say it loud and there will always be a group of people that will gravitate towards that. And and that will pass as as some sort of intelligence or genius. And I think he just – I think he's jive. <laughs> I think he's a sham and a hustle. And for a guy that seems to be conflicted about being involved in pro wrestling because of his supposed Christian ideals, boy, he doesn't seem to be able to get away from it at all. And I find that funny in and of itself that he's still sort of like like a lamprey just sort of feeding off of the edges of pro wrestling just by his own <laughs> involvement in it. Whereas you think like move on with your fucking life and do something else. Cause he clearly doesn't enjoy any aspect of pro wrestling. That's the other thing that came across really clearly. He doesn't like the shit. 
at all. I have problems with pro wrestling, but I enjoy doing this. I don't think he's enjoying himself. I think it's purely a labor of commerce for him, and it comes across that way. One of my main reactions to to it was that there were some there were some good points that were made, but yes. the bombastic manner in which they were made was hard to take for me, at least. Um, uh, Again, well, very Trumpian, right? Yeah. yeah uh, yes. 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 There, there, will, <laughs> there will be the occasional salient point that comes out of Trump. But again, when it's, when it's cast by such a buffoon, when it's, when it's a ratio of eight or nine to one to bullshit lies and ridiculous notions to the thing that makes sense – but the thing that makes sense is what he will cling on to like a life raft and keep screaming, but look at this, look at this. And everyone goes, what about all this other shit? And like, ah, it doesn't count anymore. Unfortunately for most people, it does count. And then unfortunately also there's the people that will just go along with the loudest, strongest voice. And Vince Russo, I, I'm sure if somebody sat him down and just went like, how are you not a sham or a hustle? he would spend all of his time explaining how you're a sham and a hustle and never look inside. I've read Russo's books. I'm the one who actually did. Yes. (laughs) And what I found was a remarkable story of a guy that would constantly put on airs about, I'm not the same guy that I was before I've changed. I've transformed but he wants to say that I've changed for the better without saying that how he did things was bad. He wants the best of all worlds. I've always been awesome. I'm just more awesomer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he won't concede a point about anything, anything. And he is no, even when he tried, uh, my funniest moment on that podcast was when he tried to be self-deprecating, but he wasn't able to do it. He was sort of, (laughs) he was making a, he started to make a joke about himself, about how he, um, how he had a really short attention span, which clearly he does, right? Clearly he can't hold a thought. Russo, I've always said, he writes a pretty decent first chapter but he's never written a novel that was worth a shit. You know, like he's an idea guy and I get it. I'm an idea guy, but he's never had a filter except in the WWF where there's someone to tell him no. So lacking that, you know, so he started to make an illusion about that, right? Like, Oh, you know, I have a really short attention span. And then he goes, and that's why I get so much done. Oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's the classic, like, tell me something about yourself. That's a negative at a job interview. And the person says, Oh, I'm a perfectionist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I just, I just want everything to be just right. That's my problem. That's Russo all day. He's the guy that, you know, anything that could just, and as a man, I just find people who wrap themselves in anything whether whether it's the flag or their label as a family man 
or their thing as a Christian. It, it, chances are, if you're wrapping yourself up in something else symbolically to define you, you're an asshole. <laughs> if you well, can't take stock on who you are as a person and instead cling to the label as a sign of your goodness, chances are you and I ain't going to get along too well. Well, bro, I guess we won't be having Vince Russo as a guest on the tipping point anytime soon. But we will be back sometime in the near future, maybe next week, maybe the week after. We'll oh, see. yeah, it all depends on what kind of guests we're going to get. But um, yeah. thank you to Jody Hamilton. Uh, that was an interview that went, honestly, much better than I thought it would. I think once you once you got him, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Hawaii on the beaches, we would see how many of like these little sand crabs we could catch. And uh, once I figured out how to get the crab to commit to coming out of the hole, it was a whole lot easier. And I think Jody Hamilton's one of these guys that, you know, he's, he's all crust and he's all negative about wrestling, but just like most wrestling fans, I think they just need to be reminded that, man, there's joy to be found in this shit or else it doesn't need to exist anymore. You know, <laughs> like yeah. there is joy in it. And I think there's things to learn. And, and once he lightened up, I thought it became a really good interview. And, uh, and we yeah, look forward clear, to doing clearly that again his, soon. His career b- brought joy to him. You could just hear, you could just feel that. From him. Oh yeah, I mean, he, when he said his entire, in, I mean, I if I figured he was going to name, you know, a time that he was in a certain territory or a certain yeah. aspect of his career, but I mean, that part came across as so genuine to me. Of like, I loved he loved being in ring talent. Clearly, you know, yeah. from the fifties to eighty nine, like that that was his heart and that was his joy. And uh, it was a pleasure to hear him talk about that. And, you know, of course, your questions are so great. And, and he uh, was – and mm-hmm. he he was very good in the ring, too. I mean, I didn't – obviously, I only saw him towards the tail end of his career. But he was a great tag team wrestler, and he did um, – yeah, all that. Yeah, and I mean, the heel tag team wrestlers of that day, just how they were able to really put the screws to a team and frustrate an audience, but in the best way possible. Now it's, they're almost afraid of frustrating anybody, I noticed. And I can see why. I mean, wrestling fans go with the wind. If they're not happy with the result of a match, you know, it's anarchy. It's threatening to not watch anymore. It's losing interest. You know, Roman Reigns won this. I mean, these are wrestling people that I'm seeing say stuff like that. You know, Roman Reigns won the Elimination Chamber fucking blah, blah, blah. It's like, like, it's not, the story's not done yet. We're not at WrestleMania. Like, I don't, <laughs> like, gotta let things play out. And he was, I mean, I would say them, that his tag team and the Andersons were the best I ever saw at putting the screws to a freaking face in peril. Yes. And yes. just stretching that out. More. Yeah. And I mean, and you got to keep in mind that back then, especially when Jody Hamilton was doing his thing, I mean, still the Andersons, yes, but especially in like the 50s and 60s and 70s. A hope spot was a baby face avoiding getting hit once. 
that's it. And then he would get clubbed and put right back down. <laughs> you know, I mean, they would beat dudes up for 30 minutes sometimes without them getting a tag or even the hope of a tag. And they were skilled enough to keep an audience engaged. Now, you know, God, you put someone in a front face lock for more than 10 seconds and people are like getting antsy. And part of that is the way modern wrestling is. But I think part of it is there was a skill level there with those guys and allowing them room to see how far they could take things instead of pulling the trigger and worrying all the time. Um, And yeah, I mean, it was, it was artfully done and he was definitely an artist and it was fun to hear him be joyful about wrestling. And that's my last thing about Russo is that that guy has no joy in him. That, that whole show, Larry, I don't remember. I mean, it's not that they never cracked a joke or laughed, but there just seemed to be no joy about Russo whatsoever, except when he was hey, being so, snide. Yeah. What was the exact bro count? The bro count was 39. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 39 bros is a lot of bros, bro. bro yeah, that is. <laughs> and and he, I will say this for Russo. It's the one positive thing I'll say about him. He uses bro the way freaking Goodfellas uses forget about it. Like yeah. it really was this sort of versatile take on the word bro. So, <laughs> so kudos to you, bro. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing and please never name anything Pyro and Ballyhoo again for crying out loud. <laughs> if you want a great name, you need the tipping point. And that brings <laughs> us to another episode of the tipping point. Thank you for joining me and Larry, and thank you again to Jody Hamilton, and we'll be back in a week or two with another episode. Have a good night. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.